PJ, if you could just repeat after me, say this and say, I don't want to, but if this continues, I'll have to go to conduct. Go ahead. And... I don't want to, but if this continues, I will have to go to conduct. You're already one of the top three referees in the world. Thank you. You're done. That's it. That's it. I mean, that, that is. I'm in. You're in. I'm You're in. in. You're, you, that, that, that you passed. Actually, how that's a great question. But like, how trigger happy with conduct warnings or conducts will you be? Oh, like, just man. this full on trigger happy? You get a conduct um, stroke. I, you get I, a... <laughs> I, I, I would like to think that I'll be giving out a lot more than the, the current referee. You need one? Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Weekly Roundup, catching up on your headlines, results, and news from the professional squash tour. Although we might have to adjust weekly. Maybe, you know, Bill, uh, who's very much in the offseason right now, prepping for next season. Uh, yeah, we might have to adjust the, the weekly, huh? Month, I mean, monthly would we be go to monthly. nice. But, and, you know, I don't want to start this on a sour note, um, even though Connor just, and I just had a little spat a few seconds ago. Um, I am ready to do this every week, just to let you guys know. You guys are the ones who are not ready to do this. Is that fair? Can we, can we admit that? No. The, not at all. No. Oh, you guys are, no. You guys are idiots. Not at all. We've, we've, got the, we've got the receipts and the text messages that prove it, Bill. Yeah, we have evidence, Bill. I don't know where you're getting that from. But, um, yeah, that's extremely misleading information. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. So you guys, um, th- put it this way, that's not cricket. What you guys are saying, that's not cricket. <laughs> I like yeah, pretty good, PJ, huh? That's called good. foreshadowing. I like- Summer is off to a, uh, a, a what's, I can't believe it's already, what is it, July? Today's July 5th. What have you guys been doing all summer, Connor? I mean, I got to go first because PJ is going to, you know, know. exceed. Like, I want to be PJ when I grow up, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So other than a, a great Washington summer, I, I was traveling to Canada recently and, um, a fun little trip for a director of athletics conference up in Canada. Uh, a lot of great, you know, it's a private, uh, network club of about 40, uh, director of athletics. Um, some, uh, y- you may recognize John Flanagan being, uh, amongst the group and, um, yeah, it was fun. Um, went to Calgary and Edmonton actually played golf for like getting out there for the first time. So, wow. uh, wow. yeah. Wow. And, and how are you hitting it? Um, shot a 42 on the front. Um, wow. and then it kind of fell apart on the back, but, uh, you know, ended up with a 93. So I can't, that's respectable. That's respectable. Yeah. Okay. And I'll, I'll take that any day. Um, were you playing with your clubs or straight or rentals? Rentals. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Although now at this point, my, my clubs are a good 10 or 15 years old. So, you know, they're uh, maybe the rentals are better. Uh, yeah, so it was oh, good. Calgary awesome. and Edmonton. Nice. I've never been to that part of the country before, or that part of Canada. I've never, you know, I don't really know the Pacific Northwest area. I heard it's gorgeous. Yeah, um, it wasn't quite that far. It was more Midwest or Mountain Town equivalent okay. in the U.S. Okay. And um, it was very nice to like, you know, because I don't know my Canadian geography very well, but a bunch of the Canadian guys are also like, yeah, I know nothing about the U.S. So I was like, oh, thank God. So we were both like explaining to each other where, where we were respectively. So yeah, right. there's some and, decent squash out that way. The uh, you know out, out in Edmonton, they got a really big league, like really uh, high participation in leagues. I mean, every club we went to had like five to eight courts. 
you know, so, um, and, and they just have, I mean, these are massive operations. Some of them had like 30 tennis courts, uh, pickleball obviously exploding. Um, it's hard to be ignored there, but, um, yeah, it was, it was great. And they also, you know, beyond just what we do professionally and doing, you know, seminars and, uh, networking, um, they wanted to show us like culturally what they, what they did up there. And we went to stampede a rodeo. How was that? It was, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, great, well, you know, well-run show, great production value. Um, Bill, I think you have, you should set new aspirations to become a a rodeo, either clown or uh, MC. (laughs) (laughs) You already got the clown part down. You're like, I could do both guys. I can do both. I can do both. Yeah. But it's insane. I mean, uh, yeah. That's funny. Would would you pay, would you pay to go see it? Because I assume you got in for free. Yeah. Um, so I, did, I actually, the only other one I'd been to was in Madison Square Garden. When oh, they, so it, when so it, it was like that. So it's a rodeo. It's a rodeo. Yeah. They call it Stampede or Rodeo. It seems okay. interchangeable. Okay. But but there's a great line. I don't know whether this was beautiful media training or whether this was um, just pure inspiration from one of the riders, the female riders who had been you know, MC's doing, and she just won the race. And like, hey, you've been out, you've been taking time off, you're coming back, your first time in five years. Like, what have you been up to? And she's like, raising babies and riding horses. (laughs) (laughs) It was just brilliant. So, I mean, that's all, that's, that's the bit you need, just that takeaway. So maybe when PJ finally goes on to PSA TV again, they'll ask him where he's been and that's what he'll say. So, so. Oh, I, I won't be that uh, that disclosing, Bill. You know me. I like to I like to remain a little bit of a mystery. Speaking, speaking of MCs, did you see uh, did you see the video I sent you of the guy introducing um, Joey Chestnut yesterday at the hot dog at the hot dog eating contest? Did you watch that? No, I didn't get a chance. I've just been I've just come on my way back from some travels. Bill. Okay. I've, um, you know, I do have a life outside of the uh, of this podcast. Well, uh, I, believe well, I, I believe I believe it because you're never available to do it. But whatever, Connor, did you did you watch it? Yeah, I, I did. It was. I mean, uh, now now I know who your inspiration is, Bill. Like, do, this is. Did you if think you, you could be? If you could be him, snap your fingers and be him. Would you be him? Oh, I'd be him in a second. I thought he was introducing God. Did you? Uh, I, I mean, mean I, if you watch yeah. like that, you think he might be introducing God or Jesus? And it was the most incredible intro ever. PJ, I highly recommend. And anybody listening, watch the MC's intro of Joey Chestnut at yesterday's hot dog eating contest. It was ridiculous. Yeah, Connor, is there a way you can add the link to the uh, to the podcast? Anywhere? Yeah, it should be for the, yeah. for the listeners. Yeah. yeah, make life a bit easier rather than um, me, me. You know, confusing everybody. Bill, yeah, <laughs> the little things, the little things that I watch that nobody else has any interest in. You mean those kind of things? No, those it's not things, just yeah. you. Yeah. It wouldn't be the first time, Bill. It wouldn't be, and it you're, won't be. The you're last. what we call our everyday man. Okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Man on the street. A little bit too online, actually. Uh, PJ. I know you have been traveling, um, trying to get a hold of you. You've been uh, in Italy. Uh, you're in the UK now, but you just spent some time in Italy. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy, really, since the back end of the the uh, junior season in the in the states. Season wrapped up around middle of March, and uh, popped back to the UK for some, um, hoping for some time uh, away and a bit and a bit of a break. But literally went straight into uh, the British Open, World Championships. Manchester, um, and then finally getting back to London and slightly quietening down mid to late May. So June June was relatively quiet with um, just plenty of golf, plenty of time on the range, working on the swing and uh, and what have you. And then 
it was a holiday, a vacation that had been booked about six months ago in the midst of a really crappy winter here in the UK. And uh, the family and I, my parents, my sister, her two daughters uh, and a couple of their friends took a trip to a town just outside Venice called uh, Yezolo. It's about 20 kilometres outside uh, the city. We used to go there as a kid, actually, because um, when I was a lot younger, my my mum, she didn't actually like to fly. So uh, as kids, we would take the train down to um, Calais, or take the train down to the coast of England, sorry, uh, put the car on a ferry across to Calais, and then put the car on the back of the train and take a two-night over uh, overnight stay and drive or take the train down to Italy and then drive through Italy, eventually down to either Rimini or, or Yezolo, depending on uh, where we were going to go. So we had a bit of a, a trip back down memory lane. So we? how was the food? Um, I'd forgotten how good it was. We've not been there for about six years, which was amazing how quickly that time went by. But... Um, it is, uh, it's my favourite cuisine. I mean, it's so fresh, it's so natural. It's a massive farming region down there in Yezolo, and, and you could tell the food had literally come out of the, you know, out, out, of, out of the field straight into the kitchen and then onto the they table. A, they have a term for that, you know. They call it's called farm to table. By the way, I like the no, I the, fe- the field to the kitchen. That could be new. PJ's PJ's new restaurant, field to kitchen. I like it. Well, well, that, that, um, and also, also in that in that in that, um, in that particular region, uh, in that Venice and Treviso region, it's um, well renowned for uh, prosecco. Ah. It's called the it's the Valdobbiadene region, and all of the official um, proseccos will have a stamp with control of Valdobbiadene. Uh, it's like their authentication stamp. And you could literally, there were beach huts down there selling, you know, a glass of Prosecco for, you know, a dollar. Wow. It was actually cheaper than Diet Coke and Coke and whatever. So it was a great excuse to obviously get drunk on Prosecco and <laughs> sit in the sun eating uh, beautiful, fresh Italian food. So um, just got back late last night and it was uh, a wonderful trip away with the family and uh, everybody had a, a thoroughly good time. So you're, you're, looking very, you're looking very refreshed, PJ. Yeah. I feel it. I feel it, Kai. Yeah, I mean, six hours around a swimming pool with your trip into the Adriatic and then, uh, you know, out to the restaurant for a bit of food. Yeah. Eight days of that will certainly chill you out a feel, little bit. So, no, a lot, of benefits, a lot of benefits to feel to, to feel to kitchen eating, Connor, as we all know, as we read about all the time. I'm looking at it. <laughs> looking at it right now. <laughs> I, I was waiting for with your with your Hello. Prosecco uh, story. I was waiting for you to launch into the diatribe that we hear Joey Barrington always talk about champagne. I don't know if you've ever listened to his champagne talk. It, it, with all due respect to Joey, he has absolutely no idea what he's yeah. talking about when it comes to <laughs> champagne, alcohol, or drink of any kind. Oh, oh my god! He, he, he Technically, me, it's called yeah. sparkling wine unless it's from champagne. If, if <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he goes way deeper than that. He talks it like upside down. Bob. Anytime I have trouble sleeping, I in my mind I just think about Joey Barrington talking to me about champagne, yeah. and I fall asleep like instantly. It's yeah. instant. I don't know where he gets his information oh, I, from. I it's, pa- uh, it's so. I repeated it to somebody after the story because he was so convincing. After he told me this story about champagne and the, he talked about the bubbles if they go upside down or something when you turn it over, it means it's. Free. He went and this whole thing. I told somebody who actually knows something about it. And they're like, "What? I've never. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard." What about yourself? Nice summer, what about oh, you yourself? Know, you, you know how you know how <laughs> summer is my time. Um, I, I I really every, almost every day either swimming, on the boat, golfing. Uh, I mean, work, I do work. I, I actually do work, believe it or not. But 
when you when you say swimming, are you swimming? In yeah, the ocean? yeah. So starting yeah. in um, starting in late April, early May, I put on the full wetsuit when the water's still in the fifties, and I, I go go for my swims. And then as as the month goes on, I shed down to a half wetsuit, and uh, then just like some mittens and some booties. And then once June comes, like mid June, the temp, water temp gets up into the mid sixties. I just go with the half wetsuit, wetsuit, and now it's more just to uh, prevent jelly jellyfish things and. Um, is that you, so? Is that the Atlantic? It ocean, is. It's the Long Island Sound, but it's yeah. the, the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, exactly. So, are they not? Uh, are they not great white sharks? There, in I think there? in I think in all of our time living in this area, there's been one great white shark sighting. Is all that would be that would be enough <laughs> for me to never go in to that area. Of water. I, I think we've talked about this though. I mean, honestly, yeah. I, I am sixty, as it's well advertised. Um, I'm gonna. Uh, my life is obviously three quarters over. If I died being eaten by a great white shark, it would 100% suck at the time. Obviously, the pain, the, the trauma, <laughs> the blood. My wife would be bumming for like a couple of weeks. So, I mean, I, I, <laughs> not that long. She'd grieve for a couple of weeks before she moved on. But in the end, like 50 years from now, like be a cool way to go, right? Like, hey, how'd, how'd Bill yeah. die? Oh, he got eaten by a shark. Yeah. So. So you'd have your name up on a yeah, board as opposed somewhere. to like yeah. you know dying on the toilet or something you know or just Fine. having <laughs> yeah finally a good story out of Bill Jesus <laughs> exactly the exactly the case exactly the case so um yeah so otherwise just yeah summer summer it was July fourth yesterday so obviously the uh, there's a lot of rain up here in the Northeast so firework displays have been canceled much to the chagrin of everyone so last night the neighborhood that I live in is on the shoreline and every drunken gentlemen decided that after eat, drinking like a thousand Miller lights that it was time to shoot off all their fireworks at once at 1030 last night. And right. it just went on and on and on. And I was like, you know what? Enough. I, I think fireworks are the most overrated things ever. It's the one technology is it, it, fireworks are, is making of fireworks. Is that a technology? Would you say? Yeah. So, so it's yeah. like the least advanced technology ever, right? They're the same fireworks we've been watching since I was a little kid. Like they haven't changed. They go up in the air, they make a loud noise and they, the sparklers go out. Like at this point, you would think that we would have like people spelling people's names out, like a movie being shown up there. Just something that's like a little more advanced than blowing things up. So it's, I'm, it's happening now with drones. They're right. hundred you know. percent. But the problem with drones is, and that's why like the, um, you know, the, the population that loves fireworks, they don't like drones because they don't make the noise, right? The drones don't have the explosions. Yeah, I mean, all we have to do is add speakers near where that happens, yeah. and then and then you get music. <laughs> I, right? I, so. I watched the drone show, and I thought it was fantastic. And they they like did an American flag, and it was like the formations were ridiculous. And they played music along with it. It was like like there was no loud bangs, basically. Kind of like kind of like your life, no loud bangs. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. sorry, sorry. How to be said? A bit, of a bit of a salty finish to that. Uh, you, you know, it's funny, yeah. Bill. It's it's kind of on par because sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. It's true. It's, ooh, do we have <laughs> no news to tell, Connor? I don't know. Come on, man. No, no. Come on, some Connor personal news. Just give us one tidbit. Mm-hmm. Come on, mm-hmm. please. I my life's an open book on this show, Connor. So is PJ's. Come on. No, we're good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So PJ. Um, before we get into, uh, into the squash, which we'll eventually talk about, um, well, this is somewhat squash related. Let's talk about, um, I had, I heard Joey Barrington mention during Alguna, 
um, which you were noticeably absent from, as you are from every Egyptian event. Um, mentioned, appreciate no, that. No book. problem. Yeah. Um, he mentioned your name often during it, um, mostly longingly because he's sitting next to like Lisa Aitken and Johnny Williams, and you could tell he just him and Johnny Williams. I'm ready. I'm ready for them at some point just to get them just start swinging at each other. You could, you could just, you could. <laughs> am I wrong? Is there a little, little tension or no? <laughs> There's a lot of energy on on the on the cans. I'll, I'll give you that okay. much. Johnny um, Johnny's like an energizer bunny. I mean, he's he's the same age as me, so he's he's just touching fifty. Mm-hmm. And I've never known anybody who, from the moment he gets up to the moment he drops off to mm-hmm. sleep, is has a continual level of energy that is you know that of a like of a a teenager. He's nonstop, and he will be drinking espresso coffees at. 10, 12 o'clock. Really? No problem. And then still goes off to sleep. I just think he's go, go, go continually through the day and then suddenly, yeah. bang, crashes, which is why he's continually got, you know, ailments and injuries and illnesses and goodness knows what else. But Joe, I think Joe, he's, he's obviously very pleased to see Johnny at the beginning of right. the week. But after about two days of commentary, when, you know, as a commentator, the ideal situation as you begin an event when some of the matches are a little bit they're not quite as even and as, as intense as some of the latter matches generally speaking mm-hmm. you want to ease your way into an event but for Johnny it's literally he's straight in for the 100 meter sprint and that will that pace will continue throughout the tournament and Joey uh, as we know um, you don't hear too much from him in the earlier rounds but he peaks for the, the quarter semis and final and the television day so I just think by the end by the middle of the week Joey is ready to throttle. Johnny awesome. Williams, it, it, you, sure. It's so, I could yeah. tell, I've never heard it confirmed. I've always thought, and Johnny seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. I've met him a couple of times and he's really, Johnny's really awesome. nice. Johnny's, but I, yeah. I could definitely, I, Joey, 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 Joey loves Johnny. Don't get me wrong. There, there's right. no, um, there's no bad feeling between the pair of them, but Joe, Joey just, uh, he gets a little bit tired and a little bit irritable and towards, towards the end of the week, he, he's ready to, to throw Johnny out. I'd, yeah. lo- I'd yeah. love to hear Johnny's, Johnny's side really- of this, by the way, just, just, yeah. just, just because Joey's not the easiest person to deal with for a week long for a week either, as you well know. Yes, I do. PJ, I can totally relate. <laughs> Connor, are you talking about me from the beginning of this podcast to oh, the end? No, 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 not, not you, not you. Just, you know, there, I have other people in my life. Bill. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So Joe, the reason I brought that up, PJ, is that um, Joey offhandedly a couple times, and you have kind of on the side mentioned this to us, that you are um, looking at a path towards becoming a PSA referee. And I think we're break, we're breaking yeah. news here. I know there's nothing that's, uh, and we've talked about this, there's nothing signed on the dotted line. There's no real, no. real like, hey, PJ, I'm going to be in Houston in September type of, type of setup. But can you talk about your... Um, I guess your your path, your desire, your your want to be a PSA referee, and what what you're looking to do if if everything went according to Hoyle, like to, to what you would like it to be. Yeah, I mean, it all came about as a little bit of um, it started off as a little bit of a joke, really, because obviously behind the scenes when we're commentating in in the studio, you've got the. Um, the video ref will also be in the same vicinity, and as will the producer and. Um, Generally, Lee Beachall, um uh, from the PSA will be there. And often decisions would be coming up on the screen and I wouldn't necessarily or wouldn't very often really agree with some of the decisions were, were being made by the referee or the video referee. You know, and I'd keep making these kind of cheeky comments to Lee Beachall about, you know, you need to get me out there. You need to get... And all of a sudden, one day, he turned around and said, all right, let's do it. If you if you if you want to do it that much, then why don't we set you off down a path where 
we can potentially um, get you out and start refereeing some of the some of the pro events because the way PSA is heading with obviously the backing of, of Mark Walter and the way things are starting to move along with the PSA, um, it seems like there may be a budget now that's put aside towards paying referees to referee full-time because for all the crap that these referees take and all the grief and all the insults and everything else, they're doing it for pretty much peanuts. A lot, Everybody's got a, a full-time job that they're working on. The, the, the refereeing they do out of the generosity of their, you know, giving up their time. It's really minimal reward as far as a, a financial um, reward for the refs. So, you know, they're taking all of this for, for pretty much nothing really. So hopefully we're looking to try and get some money put aside where I think the, the thought behind it is so we can improve some of the referees that are already out there and established so they can maybe spend less time in their current jobs and, and start to really focus on the referee in itself and then also introduce maybe some ex-players or some uh, other potential referees. So it, it becomes a bit more of a, an attractive prospect to become a referee. So um, I'm in early talks with the PSA, Lee Drew, Lee Beechall. I've already done a couple of the exams where, uh, which I need to pass to, to get through to a certain status or a certain level of refereeing. But I'm at a point now where I could go away and maybe do some things like European team championships. I can do some of the smaller challenger events, um, local and close by in Europe. There's some um, events here in, in and around the London area where I can go and gain some chair time, some experience. And then it will be a progression from there. Um, while, I'm, while I'm at those particular events refereeing, somebody like a John Massarella will come along and assess the refereeing that I'm doing. And then that will then get um, reviewed by Lee Drew and, uh, and probably Roy Gingell. And then it, the, the process there on in, I'm not entirely sure where or how it progresses on from there, but that's the stage that, that we're at. And I just want to try and... I mean, I'm still battling back and forth with it because when you look at the amount of abuse and the amount of stick that these referees get, I'm thinking to myself, I've got a great situation where I'm doing the commentary and I'm there with Joey, who's one of my best friends, you know, and I'm chatting about a game that I love with a, with a best friend of mine with little abuse for it. If I've then put myself into that position, how many referees do you know that the players actually respect and, and like? So do I want to then move away from the commentary and then move into the refereeing full time? So it's it's still a little bit in the balance, but we're, you know, we're early on in, in that particular journey. If you had to look forward to a, like a year from now, would you prefer to be the person in, I don't know how long this path would take with the, with the being assessed and whatnot. And uh, so maybe two years from now, would you prefer to be the person yeah. in the chair at the TOC doing the championship match or wanting to be on the comms doing the, uh, the play-by-play if you, if you, right now, flat. right now, right now, right, right now, commentary, for, it's commentary is my, is still my real passion. For, yeah. I, I just, so for sure. So, but, but two years from now, if you're on this path to become a full-time referee, if, if such a thing is, is a thing yeah. with the PSA, is that something that you, you yeah. are like, Hey, this is what I want to happen or no, it's just kind of like you want to dabble in it and kind of be a leader in it and make, uh, make the, make it better for everyone. Or do you want to be the actually PJ? Hey, PJ is the referee for every big match on the PSA. 
No, that's that's certainly not a that's not a driving force for me. I've never been one that wants the limelight or wants to be the front man in these big situations. It's, it certainly wouldn't be about me as a as a referee. I just feel that the standard of refereeing, which in my opinion has dramatically improved over the last five years, and it continues to improve. I would just like to see how high we can raise that bar and if we can make that more professional so the game becomes more watchable. I just feel like the game right now, and maybe we can talk about this in a bit, I don't know, it's, it's becoming borderline unwatchable for me. And it needs to, it needs a bit of a shift. So if I can input some of my experience as an ex-player, work alongside the referees, maybe become one of the first ex-players that starts this journey and this path into professional refereeing, then others can follow from my example, if you like, and, and take it up, you know, beyond those kind of levels, really. That that would be my ambition for it. But I certainly don't want to be, you know, the central referee for the Tournament of Champions or the World Championships or British Open, because that is, you know, that's not something that is of uh, a major interest. Would, to would tell me this last question on this, and I appreciate you being so open and honest about this. Um, what's the time? What, like, what is the path like time wise for a player like somebody like you who has so much experience in the game? An ex player who played at the highest levels, been coaching, obviously on the PSA TV, so know know as much about the game as anybody in the world. From where you are right now, what's the time <clears throat> time length you to you becoming a referee at a at a platinum event? What what would be how long would that take? I think if if all the ducks were in line and I had access to enough events, I could probably get to referee at a pro tournament, maybe a, a PSA, a, you know, World Tour mm -hmm. event. I would I would reckon between twelve and eighteen months because there's still. There's still so many rules that I would need to learn and so much experience because that's, you know, that's where these referees are starting to improve now, the experience that they're gaining. You, Jason Fosters, you, Andrea Santamaria's, you, John Mazzarella's. They've been around for a long time, but they still, I still feel they need more exposure to the very top matches and top level of matches because it brings a completely different pressure. Uh, you know, and this is one of the things that I find so frustrating and, and, and upsetting, really, because these referees who take so much abuse on social media and, you know, from the players themselves, they've got no idea how pressure-filled it is to be sitting out there as the referee in some of these big matches. And we can all sit here with the luxury of replays and time and no pressure on making a call. But what they're subjected to up there, I've had it at a very, very minute amount at a decent junior level and it is a it's a completely different experience we all think it's quite easy to just sit there and make a call and i can tell you now it's it's a bloody hard job no well i hey i give you i hate to do it but i give you kudos for it um a lot of people talk about it walking the walk you know talking to talk you're walking you're walking yeah. the walk and if uh you know looking yeah. to make that probably the most important part of our sport right now is refereeing, right? It's definitely the part that's under the most fire and the most scrutiny. Um, and for yeah. you to take that step in this juncture of your life to, uh, to improve something like that, I give you, I mean, again, painful, painful as it may seem, I do give you kudos for that. I appreciate that. We'll, we'll see how it pans out. Things are starting to change. I think after the events and the situations that have arisen over the last year to two years, I feel now it's time for PSA to take a, a, 
a bit of a, a step back and have a have a look at how we can tidy up this sport because World Tour finals, British Open, were some of those matches were farcical for me, and our, our game cannot continue to go down that path because if we want to become an Olympic sport or attract big time sponsors and big money into the game, they're not going to sit and watch that. So I know that. Um, uh, former or current referee Roy Gingell now is going to have a more involved part with the referees, but I just I get a sense that what needs to happen. I just feel that there's so many mixed messages being given. It, I feel as though the PSA, the players, and the referees all need to sit in one room and just clean out clean out some of the the uncertainty because I just get the feeling that the referees are being told to to direct a match a certain way. I don't think the players are aware of how they're supposed to be moving or what they're being penalised for. There's just so much, there's so many grey areas that, that need to be cleared up. And then as soon as we get that fresh um, directive, then I think that could start to tidy up. Because at the moment, it just feels, it seems as though the players have got one idea of the way things should be happening. The referees have got another. The referees are penalising the players for, for playing a certain way. And the players, they can't change because they don't know any different and they're not aware of exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So there's there's some, some shift that needs to take place, I think, in between now and the new season and hopefully put that into place moving into, into the coming season. And that could could clean things up a little bit, but there's still a way. So PJ, I've, I've said this offline. I think by you stepping up to the plate, it is really setting, as Bill said, like a new trend and being the first is always tough. But I think this could be the lead domino behind a whole new direction of refereeing. With any new direction, um, any companies trying to go in, there's like the strategy, the technology, but it's the people that make all the difference. And, sure. you know, you stepping up to the plate like this really would be that trend setting. Um, you know, fast, like if you fast forward maybe five to 10 years where there's more ex-PSA players really filling these roles, I think that that will become full circle. I mean, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, you, you being the first, but like, where would you like, how would you try and encourage other people to do this? I mean, I don't want to be remembered as, as the first. Uh, I just feel it has to come from somewhere. I just, I'm so, I can explain it. I'm so passionate about the game. I just feel that we're in a situation now <sighs> It's about as bad as I've seen it from from a watching standpoint. And I, I just would like to be one of the people that maybe tries to help. Listen, it may not even happen. Who knows? But I'd like to try to be one of the players or ex-players that comes along and tries to help to clean some of these things up to make the game more watchable again. And if other people follow from an example that I set, then... You know, that would be great, but that certainly wouldn't be a, a driving force or a reason behind me trying to do it. I'm just, I just want the game, I want the players and the referees to be singing from the, from the same hymn ship, uh, sorry, hymn sheet, and the game just becoming much more attractive in general. And just, you know, I think the, the players would like the standard of the refereeing to be better. So if that can come from an ex player that's been at their level and can understand and appreciate some of the subtleties that some of the current refs may not see or understand, then 
if that it just brings that gap a little bit closer together, then that would be my job done. Yeah, I think there's a, a key part that's missing is really the confidence in the players and the referees. And there's been, I mean, when you get examples of a Saul who's really testing the boundaries, and it was really illuminating seeing the slow-mo it was in Manchester. It was in Manchester. They showed it in Manchester when he played job uh, against yeah. Hisham in the semis. And, and that just, it's so illuminating to like see those small things that are imperceptible from the distance that the referees are at to be able to even see that. But the difference it can have on the on the action on court. That That's a classic. I, I mean, I don't think any referee that would have been sitting there watching that particular situation in real time would have picked up on the holding of the hand of, of a cell. That is where you would need a video referee to see the evidence and then act on it straight away. Yeah. And I'm not trying to, I don't know who the VR was at that time. I'm not trying to put the blame on the video ref at that time, but that was where that whole situation could have been tidied up. So it's do, little situations like that. that do, you, do you think a, a VR ref, like, because I don't think this isn't happening right now, but would be stationed to be able to watch that in real time and, you know, call a flag on the play, so to speak, right? Like, if that's occurring. That's what they should be able to, that's what they should be able to do. Yeah. 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 And I think that would. Because it, because there's plenty of little mini situations like that, Connor, that take place in real time that are so quick and so subtle yeah. that to the naked eye, if unless you have the luxury of replay or slow-mos and different angles, some of the things are really hard to see. And and even with that particular luxury of having those um, that technology isn't always clean cut either. Right. So it's almost like you need yeah. the, the VR ref to be in real time and feeding it to the chair that then the chair yeah. can take action on like, hey, this is happening and you know, like in soccer or, or football, like, you know, the offsides or um Yes that's going on. Yeah. Where they're, where they're watching separate situations. Yeah, where they're watching it from a, from a different angle. I mean, that would be a, a good avenue for me to possibly start off going down as well, starting off as a VR to get some experience in that area before heading straight out into the furnace because, you know. PJ, if you could just repeat after me, say this and say, I don't want to, but if this continues, I'll have to go to conduct. Go ahead. I don't want to, but if this continues, I will have to go to. Conference. You're already one of the top three referees in the world. Thank you. You're done. That's it. That's it. I mean, that, that is. I'm in. You're in. I'm You're in. in. You're, you, that, that that you passed. Actually, how? That's a great question. But like, how trigger happy with conduct warnings or conducts will you be? Oh, like, just man. this full on trigger happy. <laughs> you get a conduct um, stroke. I, you get. A- <laughs> I. I, I I would like to think that I'll be giving out a lot more than the, the current referees. You need one. I wouldn't. I, I, w- I won't tolerate. I won't. I wouldn't put up with what some of those referees are putting up with. Not to blame their refereeing. I just personally wouldn't allow it. I agree, Connor. Yeah. This. Could- I think there's way. I think there needs to be a zero tolerance the moment the player opens their mouth. Yes. Bang. Yes. You're, you're done. Agreed. Because Agreed. you know, if, you don't get it in any other sport, and if you do. Then it's then it's a code of conduct. Bang, end of. And I tell you what, the players are not stupid. They will soon respond. Unless you would like to just ask why a, uh, why a certain decision was given, why, or um, inquiring about something. But this continual comments being made after every single decision 
as it would it would it would certainly stop under my watch. I'd like to think you have my vote, PJ. Famous last words: this 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 could come back to bite me on the butt, but it needs it needs to happen. It needs to happen. Yeah. There's, yeah. It's, the, it's the only way on every level: uh, juniors, college, pros. It needs to happen on every level. So let's jump into um, since since we went went uh, a little bit long on on the refereeing. Let's jump into um, the season just ended. The 22-23 season, uh, the long 22-23 season, just ended with the um, the with the World Tour Finals in in Egypt. Um, let's take a look back. Um, we all followed very closely. PJ, you were on site for a lot of the big events, so let's take a look back uh, for our personal uh, highlights. What 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 we will remember from this past season? It was a season in a lot of ways, like any other. Conduct was obviously, unfortunately, a huge issue. Mustafa Assal dominated the headlines. But in between all of that, there was a lot of great, a lot of great stories, a lot of great play. So, uh, PJ, if you want to uh, kick off, what, what's your biggest memory of this past season or memories? Biggest memory? I mean, so many to mention. Um, the unbelievable Commonwealth Games that Joel King uh, ended up having after a, a disappointing singles event. She lost out to... Uh, who did she lose to in the, in the women's? She lost to Georgina Kennedy in the women's. Thank you, Connor. And then after that, picked herself up and went on to win gold in the the mixed the women's uh, doubles. She's now, I think, probably the most decorated uh, Commonwealth squash athlete. Um, she was phenomenal. Picked herself up really well there. Ended up going on to having a great back end of the season after that she looked really flat after that loss to, to Kennedy she looked you know like she didn't even want to be on the squash court borderline just you know hanging her rackets up so the way she turned that particular part of the season around was massively impressive obviously we went down down under for a period there where she was you know down in New Zealand and closer to home and what have you but she went on a, a bit of a run and got some confidence back and played some brilliant squash you know just like a, her former self really so the way she did that, I was extremely impressed with. Um, it was mind-blowing to see what Ali Farag did after the disappointment of the US Open back in October. What was it? Some Just six months later, he's gone. He's won the British Open adhering to Ramadan. So no food or water during the hours of, of, of sunlight. Um, absolutely ridiculous what he did there. Phenomenal. To then go on and win the... World Championships for the third consecutive time, was yep. it? Yeah, so he's gone there. Then he went on this kind of 18-19 match unbeaten run because not two days after winning the World Champs to be on such a high of winning an event of that magnitude, he's then flown across because he'd, he'd already pre-committed to go and play in Manchester. So he's had to fly across the Atlantic after the elation of winning the, the, the World Champs to then go and try and back up there, which he did yeah, in unbelievable form. So... You know the fact that there's no there's no question in my mind. Okay, Asal's had a couple of wins over him, but for me, Ali Farag is by far the player of the season. The way you know, had he not got injured, he would have completely dominated the men's game. Had it not been for that six, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, just the fact after Grasshopper, you thought, wow, will we ever see Ali Farag back to what he was again? Right? Because at the British Open, he pulled out of the uh, U.S. Open with the injury, went to Grasshopper for whatever reason. Um, He went to Grasshopper for and obviously could not play. His from April on, he won British Worlds Manchester Alguna without dropping him. I mean, that's 
it's spectacular. It's insane. Spectacular. Yeah. So it's unbelievable. He, he rose. He he rose above the noise, uh, above the Asal noise, above the uh, Mohammed Al Shabagi's making a new run at world number one. Paul Call can't be beat if he's at his best, and and proved he is. He is far and away the best player in the world, right? He's the best player in the world. Uh, you can't you can't deny it. Right. If if everyone's fresh and on their day, then uh, you know yeah. nobody's gonna no nobody's gonna beat it. So to see him do that under the conditions that he's done it, I don't think you'll see that again for a, a very long time. Yeah. It was just a freak, just 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 ridiculous. And the way he dismantled some you know some of those matches um, were just you know just just mind boggling. Um, great to see Gawad back again. I've always been a massive Gawad fan. He's finally got to the bottom of his uh, plantar fascia issues. <laughs> on, on his day, borderline unplayable, Gawad. I don't, I don't think anybody plays you know, the game the way he does. Um, and he's a breath of fresh air again to see him back playing at that, that level. Cruan had a great, three, uh, a great season. Um, he came through... And, and kind of stamped his authority, you know, in that top sort of 16 area. I still feel as though he's got some more work to do if he's going to really start to trouble on a consistent basis, you know, the top five, top six players in the world. On his day, he may, he may get close or, or nick a win, possibly, but he's he's not quite there yet. But, but just the way he conducts himself, he's very uh, articulate, he's very intelligent, he's a bright boy, Harvard graduate, obviously. Just the way he is and his demeanour on the court, I, I really like. Um, so it's good to see him there. And then this season was probably the most consistent I've seen of Mazanisham. And I've always enjoyed watching him because he's, you know, he's he's so watchable and he's he always brings something different to the court. And to see him find a bit of form, injury free, the body's good, um, and in a good frame of mind, it was nice to have him back in the mix. You know, he had a, a great run at uh, the Channel Vars, he had a good event there and he had a couple of good runs and pushed some players pretty close in the in the British and in the world. So um, that for me on the men's side was were the highlights for me. Great to see Nelly Gillis coming in, breaking into the, the top 10 in the world and finally getting up to six in the world. Um, I think all of her hard work and all of her efforts have obviously paid off. The work that she's doing with, with uh, Rob Owen has, has been rewarded. So it's good to see her. And I've always enjoyed the top three the ladies, the you know, the Gohars, Hamami and, and Shabini, obviously, that performance at the World Champs was um and at the British Open were, were just was know, has has Nayla peaked, do you think, at six? Or do you think Nayla can has the ability to go farther than that? Her her she reminds me a bit of Paul Call where basically she the tougher the conditions, she's probably as fit or fitter than anyone out there, so she could grind through any attritional matches, but does she have the game to beat a Gohar, a Hamami, a Sherbini, which is who you need to beat to win a big event at this point. She beat Sherbini. Um, yeah, be back to back though. You know, like yeah, follow yeah, that yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. Yeah, she from a from a physical perspective and a tactical perspective, I would say Naylor's right up there with with her peak. There are some element, elements of her game that she's working on and will need to continue to improve if she's going to have consistent wins over the top three or four. But is it possible? It, yes, it's possible. I think if you've got Hamami, Goha and Shibini at their best, I think Naylor will struggle. But if she catches them on, on, on an off day, then she's capable of, of a win. But, you know, 
what she's done with, if you'd have seen Nella Gillis three, four, five years ago and said that she was going to get to six in the world, I don't think anybody would have believed you. So that's just a perfect example of where and what hard work and dedication can do to 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 your level of squash right. or to any to any sport bring it you know bring that kind of drive to anything really and it shows you what you can achieve is is, is there a, is pretty remarkable. is there a parallel to her and call where where call made it to the top of the game by sheer force of will and strength and fitness and then and then the players figured him out and like now he's obviously he's still top five in the world so he's still very good but you don't he doesn't step on court anymore and you think well Paul Call's going to going to beat Farag he's going to beat us all he's now kind of the underdog in those matches is Nela there in the women's game maybe in the women's game you could advance a little farther with that kind of uh, those kind of attributes than you can in the men's game you, you could possibly argue that there are similarities with with how they train and how they apply their trade and and areas of the game that they work on because they're they're both under the uh, Robert Owen uh, umbrella so there will be some certain things that they will have some uh, kind of um, quite similar to each other but it's it's if you look at both players the area of the game that needs I would say, in my opinion, the most attention is the deception and the taking the ball into the front of the court. So if either one of those two players can improve that area and it's got a lot better than it has been, as I said, if you if you saw Paul Cole play five, six years ago and you saw Naylor play, they didn't even go anywhere near the front of the court. Right. So there are, there are big improvements in that area. It's still not natural for either one of them yet, I don't feel. Um, if they can develop that area, then there's no reason why they can't, you know, Paul Cole's obviously been at number one, but for Naylor, she'll need to really improve in that area to, to start making strides over um, those top three or four. It seems in the women's game that no one, no one really has a strong drop game. Is that my, is that just me looking at that? Where like even Gohar, who's the number one player in the world struggles at times playing the ball short, like leaves a lot of balls that come back farther than they should creating a lot of contact, which creates a lot of the Hamami issues that, uh, that, that happen when they play each other. It doesn't seem like as, as much as the men at the women have developed the short game as the men have. Two, two, two players in the ladies game. Currently, I would say that do have uh, an exceptional short game are Shabini and Tayeb. Tayeb also has so much trickery, so much skill, so much ability, you know, so many variations of taking the ball in short. The best player to ever do it in recent times was Walili. Renima Walili was outstanding, and that was why she was as good as she was, because she she had everything. She was the most complete package. Yeah. Um, Currently, I would just say it's probably Shabini and Tayeb, though. If you look at Hamami, if you look at Gohar, Gohar she's, it's an area of the game that she's working on with Rod Martin. The improvement has taken quite a long time for me. It's it's quite a slow process for her. to. It's still not natural for her to, to fade a ball or to, to take some pace off or work a ball into the front two corners. There's a few more holds and a few more flicks. It's not instinctive for her. Um, she still hits probably, I'm going to say, 80% of the balls to the back of the court. But she's very, very good at it. So she can get away with it. And it's only when she comes up against your Hamamis and your Shabinis that that particular game does get exposed. She uh, Until the semi-finals, Goha's not tested, which is probably one of the 
it's probably you could say a bit of an issue for her because she needs tougher matches earlier on right to to so she can start to work on those elements of her game that she can then bring into play in the semis and the finals because she's she's starting to or she's having to work into the front of the court to beat the top players so late in the tournament that um it's not sharp and it's not ready connor what stands out to you for this past year yeah i mean i think um i break this down in two sections headlines and then performances and um it's interesting I'm going to have to adjust part of what I say because uh, uh, PJ and I were thinking along the same lines and I, and I do have the <laughs> documented. Um, so being from uh, the U.S., Team USA performance, so unlike or the opposite of um, the Commonwealth Games, with, with with Team USA making it to the finals at the World, uh, Women's World Team Championships, I mean, that really, that's the um, a, a huge milestone for Team USA and uh, what a performance done by the players. So, uh, that was uh, one of them. The assault ban, you know, I think that that was a, a demarcation of the sport, really saying that um, what PJ said earlier, like this is unacceptable. And I think he is the main culprit right now, but that is, there's a whole shift when the players see that they can get away with it, that there's a shift towards um, doing more of that. So it was a good line in the sand to be able to say like, this is where, we're drawing a line and we've talked about this before. We want it to happen faster, sooner on court, not as much deliberation between um, action on court to, um, you know, repercussions. So, but I think that that was a big, you know, big moment uh, for this season. And then clearly the signing of the Mark, Mark Walter deal, like this will be, it's just opening up a whole new trajectory for our sport and everything aspirationally that we've thought of as fans and, you know, on the professional side of what we want, this is really the catalyst to make all that happen. So those are the three uh, headlines that really stand out. Um, literally, the, my, 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 my performances were Ali Farag. So I'm just going to say ditto to everything that PJ said far more eloquently than I could have. Uh, Gawad, um, the, just seeing him back on court, I mean, he really... I wasn't following the game as closely back when he was world number one, but seeing him, he really is just this, just a complete player. Like the balance, the shot making. Um, I think if he if he keeps that going this season, like he's going to be the, the the man to watch. And on the women's side, hard to bet against Sherbini, who just really, um, when it matters, wins. Yeah. And yep. and then Nelle, we just you know you guys had a, a great. Uh, I echo everything just said. I don't think I would have predicted it at all. Um, who knows how far she can go? Um, but those were were it. Yeah. Uh, for me, I would say the the highlight. Uh, I mean, and uh, it kind of echoes what Connor said was the Asal match against um, Marwan Al Sharbagi in Houston. Mm. Which con- and you which were there. Was, you were there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So yeah, I happen to be there. But that was kind of the. I think. The match that cemented, not that he wasn't already, but Asal then became public enemy number one in squash, right? Because of that. The whole um, debacle behind how it came about and how he became world number one. And it was with Marwan al Shabagi And who was at fault? Mar- Mar- obviously, no, Marwan has his own issues. And he was probably more, more at fault in that situation than Asal was. But either way, that was the moment that cemented Asal as public enemy number one in the squash world. He was on his way there. And 
he got to world number one the only way Mustafa Asal can, right? It couldn't have just been he won and that was it and he was world number one. There had to be a huge incident and there certainly was. So to me, that was a uh, a, a big event uh, this season. The other event, I would say events that stood out to me was probably every Gohar Hamami match. Mm. I mean, th- th- I mean, those were like operas, right? I mean, they were just like wars. The, the, I, I was, I went through and did a, just a little bit of checking this morning of of those matches just to see the times. And these are just of five of the matches that they played this year: 130 minutes, 107 minutes, 105 minutes, 76 minutes, and 84 minutes. 76 is the lowest. And that in a women's match, 76 used to be like if a women's match went 76 minutes, it would be like holy cow, what an epic. And their their matches have become the like the Ali Frazier's basically of squash, right? It's must see those two. I mean, I still think Dicherbini's the best player in the world and probably the best woman player ever. But as far as wanting to watch two players play in squash, men or women, if I had a like say gun to my head, they you could transport right now to one match. What would you want to see? It would be Gohar Hamami for me. The, their matches were yep. every one of them uh, was just epic for for better or worse. Yeah, I would agree with that until the last match. That was two hours, 10 minutes of, um, it was just a complete disaster for me. It's the referee's fault though. Complete, that- complete, complete disaster. But listen, you, you can you can point your finger at the referee, but at the end of the day, the players have got to take some responsibility for that themselves. No. Okay, if you look at both, if you look at some of the movements, I mean, there are a couple of movements that got highlighted from Gohard. They're up there with the Sal. And I don't necessarily want to single her out, um, but the shift and the the line of the movement back into the path of Hamami, who again was no angel on the day, they were both both players were at fault, and I I enjoy watching both of them play equally. And off the court, they're they're brilliant. They're they're such um, they're great for the game. But to see some of the things that were going on in that particular match. That's, it's got to stop. But, but stop. and PJ, I agree with you 100. I, I do agree with you. But at some point, where does the referee and the PSA take a little bit of responsibility for that by not conducting them? How, how is it possible that, that Gohar could kick a door like she did and not get a conduct point or something for that, right? I mean, it's got to happen. Bearing him, bear, bear, she's kicking the door and you've got the Minister of Sport. 100%. It's sitting around the back. Of, it's such a bad advert. Now, if a seller to kick the door, a seller actually got told off when he kicked the front wall. In Chicago. Um, in Chicago. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so I think there will be um, ramifications after. There, there will be something... There needs to, well, if, if if PSA don't, then that's going to open up a can of worms because you can't, you know, there's so much talk. Sorry to go off kilter here, but there's so much talk about Sal and him being unfairly treated. It's got to be consistent. Definitely, so definitely. Th- there needs to be something done so, with with the go hostage right and, and, and the Hamas, the whole the whole to me. And this again, I, I I'm not as knowledgeable about this as you are, and I'm not in, as close to it as you are. But if the referee had just in the first, beginning of that match say conduct warning and then conduct stroke and then conduct game that would have put a stop to a lot of the dissent it would have put a stop to a lot of what happened and they didn't instead it was a lot of i don't want to do this uh if you do this again i'm going to have to conduct you and that's on them i mean if you, if the players are going to get away with what they can get away with right they're professional athletes trying to win a huge title they're going to try to get away with anything they can to win and i don't call it cheating because it's not cheating if you're trying to get away they they could call it on you there's penalties 
That's why they call infractions. Yeah. That's what they do. And yeah. until they call it, they're going to continue to do it. And it's so it seems so simple to me that the referees can take control of this and they don't. And I don't know, again, I don't know whether they're afraid because they don't want to get on the wrong side of the players because it's a little odd to me. And I understand there's finances involved that the referees ride the same buses to the events as the players. They stay in the same hotels as the players. They have breakfast with the players. So it's not like other sports where they're separated and just on the field together. So there's, they're a little too close and they're in the middle of the fray. So I understand that. But to me, that whole debacle, both on the men's side and the women's side in the World Tour Finals was on the referees. Well, the the only other dynamic to factor there, because the players are one, but it's the um, the promoters, the sponsors, where the, the the in essence the the ref to be there is you're not supposed to be present. Like you're supposed to enable the match to continue. And so the the challenge is when to really draw the line. Like you go, you paid, it's the finals or semifinals, and then you call conduct match within 20 minutes, right? So that I think. The players is one aspect, and I think that the reputation or the the relationships are a factor. But there's also a greater one of, hey, this this World Tour Finals was canceled uh, because of a, a ref. So there that that's the only a part other part of the equation to factor. Fair, uh, and- very fair point, Connor. And that's where if you start that in the beginning of the tournament, and the message is there already, and then so somebody gets conducted out in a pool play match, and they're like, "Whoa, I'm playing for a lot of money here." Maybe yeah. I should watch my watch my step once it comes to the semis and the finals. So good point on your it, good, good it, job. And I think that really setting that tone and, you know, um, if if and when let's just assume PJ is already in. All right. I think sitting down with the players and, you know, when uh, I always thought this was kind of not funny, but like a strange ritual that, the you know, when a boxing match where the 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 refs would meet or the ref would meet the center with the two players and be like, all right, I want a clean fight. I want this. And he's spelling out what he's going to do, what he's going to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, going to that level of like, hey, this is what I'm not going to tolerate this. You speak once. Boom. Right. And and then you make it clear even before the match starts what your thresholds are. I, I think that actually did happen. There was a there was a period of time when that exact thing would happen where the player would go and sorry, the referee would go and speak to the two players I suppose you, the issue that you've got then is the players are going to feel, well, this is my time before I'm walking on the court. I'm in a certain mindset. I'm in a certain yeah. state of mind. I don't want to be worrying about, which at the end of the day, that's tough. That's tough luck. Right. That is what it I is. Think in squash, the referee, I think in squash, we can do that at the beginning of the tournament or at the, you know talking to all the players, like however you need to get it out, not to mess with the pre-match rituals. I, you know. This, this, this goes back to what I said earlier on in the show where I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm hearing that Roy Gingell has taken a slightly different role and is going to hopefully lay out the, the new directive for the coming season as to what the WSO and the PSA want from the players. Just so that message and that, that there's some clarity on exactly how things are going to pan out. Now, the challenge is going to be, first of all, if the players can adhere to that, and secondly, will the referees be strong enough to implement those rules and those decisions right given the appropriate time because as talking about what you're saying bill the referee doesn't want to be seeing up there being looked at as the bad guy they don't want to be the one that's giving out these calls that are made to some seem harsh but 
They're just firm, strong actions. But at the moment, they don't want to do that. They want to make it as soft and they want to be as little in the picture as they can. They want to be hopefully just sitting there calling the score out and just, you know, making a decision or two without all of this that's going on at the moment. Right, right. And and I think think a whole culture has to change. And it was kind of stark to me, and I think it was Manchester possibly, where it was after the first assault. Remember the the assault... um, um, Canary Wharf match with Macon that got out of hand, right? And then the next time that they were going to play, um, there was videos behind the scenes when Joey was doing his, Joey does his venue walkthrough, like for the PSA, and they they show the video. There's Macon, before he's playing a saw in the next tournament, stretching in the referee's room with all the referees in there while the referees are preparing for the matches. I mean, that it, I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, how is that possible that Joel Macon's stretching with all the referees and kind of joking back and forth with them while Asal's out in the hallway. I mean, that kind of stuff, that's minor league. That's not something, that's a culture, and that culture has to shift. Yeah, that would have been circumstantial. They just wouldn't have had the facilities. Call it what you will. I mean, some of these events, Bill, trust me, the I mean, you took tournament of champions, for example. Right. The players are getting warmed up underneath the, uh, the seating. Yeah, you know the conditions, the the actual environment there from a from a professional athlete's yeah, perspective are very very difficult, and the referees are going to be walking past. Yeah. And you can't help but have interaction with them. Yeah, so, you, you know. you've seen the glamour behind I, the scenes, Bill. Come on, I, no, you know, I, I, like, I understand. That that just of course he does because that's where we keep our food. <laughs> exactly, he knows exactly. I know, exa- what goes I know exactly the, where it is. But that that one yeah, jumps out is... to me, especially after the whole the whole making making a sol issue. Um, my last highlight of of the year, um, um, before I get to my players of the year, was every trophy ceremony that went awry, and there were so many of them. Number one, obviously, the World Team Championships with the women was Con- which Connor and I talked about mm. at length in a podcast. Oh man, was, the was, fireworks! Oh, the everything. fireworks on the, court, the, off court. Oh the, man, the five thousand people being stuffed into a, into the court like people used to stuff people in a Volkswagen back in the sixties. The just total disorganization <laughs> of where where to stand and what to do was awesome. And the season finished off with a for for Egypt a pretty well run World Tour. Um, champion uh, world tour finals um, closing ceremony but the highlight of that was and if you watch it while the players are talking uh, Karim Darwish who is the person who is running that event gets a phone call and he you could see he's looking at the call and it's a mystery who it was my guess is it's a, it's a Saul's dad calling to see if it's okay if he comes into the arena because the match is over so is he really banned from that too and he's looking he kind of shakes his head and kind of says, oh, I'm not going to take this call. And then he looks over at Lee Beachill and they kind of like nod each other's head. And then he takes the call. And while the rest of the people are speaking, Karim Darwish is on the phone with someone talking. It was absolutely perfect, a pitch perfect way to end the uh, a, uh, a season of awesome trophy ceremonies. So keep it up is all I have to say. The better car crashes that these trophy ceremonies are, the better it is for me. Is, is all I have to say. Unless you're in Unless I, uh, my, my proceeds ceremonies are short and sweet. Get them out, in and out. But um, yep. so, as far as for players, obviously, we talked about Ali. Um, uh, I would say, in the men's side, I'm going to go the opposite way. The person who went down most, in my opinion, this year was Joel Macon. Joel Macon went from the um, interview with Rabo and where Rabo and criticized him, and he became like the lovable underdog. And, you know, he was like, like Rob Owen was, was Darth Vader and he had uh, like kind of slammed Macon a little bit in an interview about his parents and whatnot. And I started rooting for Macon because of that. And then Macon became 
like a wuss on the court and like whining about everything that assaulted. He's supposed to be this big, tough rugby type style player. And he became the biggest whiner and the biggest complainer on court. So um, he was, he was my biggest disappointment because I was a huge Joel Macon fan going into the season. And now, you know what, Joel, um, do what you need to do to beat Asal instead of complaining about it. Can I, can I, yeah. can I just interrupt sure, go ahead. And, uh, and I'm, hope, I, I'm hoping Joel Macon doesn't hear this because he could beat the crap out of me, but I'm just, I, I was just disappointed in him. He seemed like such a tough guy and then he became whiny. He, is, he became whiny. He is a tough guy. He's not, he's just frustrated with it all. Yeah. He, he's not a whiny guy. He's, he's, he's not, he just gets on with it. And he, I like the way he plays the game. He's tough. He's hard. Um, and he's also going through a transition. So this is a player who's got himself to top 10 in the world and he's realized, fair play to him, that for him to now progress and go beyond that, he needs to address certain aspects and areas of his game, which he's in the process of doing. Now, that is, is something that doesn't happen overnight, and it's something that can take 3, 6, 9, 12, 18 months at times, all depending on exactly what it is he's doing. So rest assured that when those things do start to play, you know, or do come into his game a bit more naturally, then you'll see Joel making climbing back up the rankings but it's a it's a phase and a period of time now where he's he's having to make some changes um the frustrations it's predominantly with one particular player mm. and it's the, the reason he does it is because he doesn't respect the way that he plays so i and i the irony the irony is there joel's not alone there's a lot of other players that do get frustrated when they play against this particular player so Joel's frustration just came out in a couple of tournaments where, you know, maybe with trying to make these differences and these changes in his game, it wasn't quite happening quick enough. So he's, you know, he wants it to happen quicker. So the frustration comes in from that standpoint. Who knows? I don't know what goes on in his head, but um, he'll be back. Joel will be back. All right. Fine. Whatever. Um, on the on the <laughs> on, on, on the women's side, uh, obviously Sherbini, my my all time favorite player. But we have to look at Noren Gohar. Um, her season, she won six times this year, uh, just incredible. And she made the final of every event she played in, except Hong Kong. Like every event she played in, yes, she exactly. made the final, even if she didn't win. So, and her matches against Tamami, yeah. to me, as I said, were the highlight of the season. So, um, uh, I, I make yeah. I make my two players of the year certainly Ali Farag no brainer. And then Noran Gohar is my other player of the year. So um, just, just a great season looking forward to all of them going forward um, players to look at. um, um, Obviously Nayla Gillis, we talked about um, and Rowan Al-Rabi has always been a favorite of mine. It seems like her career, her career stalled a little this year. She didn't quite make the leap that I had predicted for her. Um, Again, she's only 22 years of age. Um, so, uh, m- maybe that's it, but on the women's side, um, I-, I do, those are the two players that I'm looking at. Cause as we're looking at the end of the careers, basically for Sarah Jane Perry, it seems she's kind of dropping off the map. Joel King's kind of dropping a little bit, uh, down. She's still fourth in the world, but is she really the fourth best player in the world right now? Probably not. Right. Um, and so there, there is room for new players and obviously my, my favorite player on the P on the PSA tour to Matoho, um, at, at age 27, she's not aging. She's ripening. So. That's a good one. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, before we quit, I, I just have to mention this. And PJ, I brought it up to you only because you're English. And um, and I know Connor, Connor surprised me by saying he used to play cricket. So the biggest news in sport in the sports world right now, overall in the world, not in the U.S. specifically, is uh, what's called the Ashes, which is a, a biennial cricket event that takes place between Australia and England. Um, I, I am the first to raise my hand that I don't follow cricket. I'm not a cricket fan, but 
the controversy, the controversy. Oh, that's why I started following because every BBC, uh, every BBC um, uh, newscast, they all called it a controversy. And it reminded me of you, PJ. So um, uh, the controversy between a match between uh, Australia and the UK, where uh, Johnny Berstow, who is supposedly someone tells me a legend of the cricket game, was removed from the game after he did something that was illegal, yet it was kind of, there's a gray area whether it should have been called on him or not. And it, the fact that Australia called him out on it caused huge ramifications in the cricket world or as big a ramifications as there can be in the cricket world. So I was wondering if both or either one of you or anybody could explain to me exactly what happened there. Um, well, what Johnny Bairstow did wasn't, um, it wasn't, illegal it was within the rules of the game which is why we've got so much uh, talk about this particular situation um what he did and i'll try and put this into a squash situation so you can understand uh, as he's as the ball is bowled to him it's gone over his head he didn't attempt to hit it it was the last ball of the over. So there's six balls in an over. It was the last ball of, an, of the over. And the ball had gone over his head into the wicketkeeper's hand, who you might call the catcher's hand. Now, normally what happens in that particular situation, the umpire or the referee would call over, which means that particular series of six balls had completed and come to an end. The players will then, or sorry, the, the, the bowl will then switch to the opposite end. Without realising, Johnny Bairstow has assumed that the referee has given this call. He's walked out of his particular area called the crease and the Australian uh, wicketkeeper, Alex Carey, has thrown the ball into the wicket, deeming that Johnny Bairstow is out. So I, it's all well within the rules. God, sorry, Connor. Well, I can I can also give sort of the uh, baseball equivalent. So picture you got a, a player, you know, who's made at the first base, and then um, um, he's the, the the runner's on first base, safe, boom. Then the the first baseman fakes throwing it back to the pitcher. The guy steps off the plate and tags him, and he's out. That's the equivalent as close of equivalently what happened here. And in baseball, we're like, yep. oh, look at that. He tricked him. He wasn't paying attention. You're like, oh, you got him versus in cricket. It's just not deemed to be, you know, you don't, that's just not what is done as a norm. It's not cricket. It's not cricket, as they say. So the, 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 the real situation comes from, in this particular, although Australia hadn't really done anything wrong, it wasn't necessarily playing within the spirit of the game. Now, um, there's a guy called Pat Cummings, who is the Australian manager, uh, sorry, Australian captain. He has a choice to make. He can either continue with the appeal, so basically claim that the decision that's been given is correct, or he could then tell the umpires to retract their appeal therefore allow the uh, allow um johnny Bairstow to stay in and the game would continue with him remaining in the right. game so this is where the, the the dilemma and i'll try and put it into squash terms for you bill it would be like you and i are playing it's two all i'm six four up in the fifth i go to serve you wipe your hand on the wall mm -hmm. ball comes in sorry I'm I'm six four down. Sorry, you serve. I hit the ball cross court into the mm -hmm. nick, but I'm clearly not ready. 
I then pick the ball up and carry on, hand out 7-4 and say, I was ready. Ah. So it's almost like one of those situations where... So so can, let, let me give another one. Is it like this? And this happens not in a pro game, but obviously on a, on a, uh, on a club level in squash where I fight through interference to play the ball and I tin it and then I, I say let but it, but but, but if similar. I hit, but if I had hit a winner I would have took the winner you'd have carried right. on so exactly. it's like it's kind of like that it's it's similar got to it. That. got it yeah it's one of those where it's it's in the rules legally and it's a complete ricket from somebody as experienced as Johnny Bears though he should never he's obviously had a complete moment where he's switched off he's assumed that they've moved on to the next uh, over but it's it's a it's a rookie error really, right. and the the problem that I mean Australia really I've seen this I've seen the actual scenario and they didn't really do anything wrong, but the problem that this Pat Cummings as the captain's got now is just to take you back five years ago, Australian cricket was in a little bit of turmoil because they got caught with tampering with the ball so they had sandpaper the bowlers had sandpaper in their pockets where they could affect the surface of the ball it's basically cheating right. and they and they got caught out so they've been spending a little bit of time i assume trying to rebuild a little bit of respect and regain some kind of um yeah some yeah some respect if you like from from cricket fans and they've come into a situation here where Potentially, if they wanted to be seen to be the nice guys, they could have said, you know, they could have made a completely different call. And ultimately, this guy, Pat Cummings, has, although he's won the test, he's lost the reputation. And he will, the, the, the impact of this won't come out for quite some time now. And although this is a temporary victory, Australia, and the thing is, Australia were winning the series anyway. It's a five match series. They're crushing them. They were 1 0. They were crushing them. They were one nil up, and they'd left three hundred and seventy runs for England to try and get, and they were in control of that particular match. So it potentially didn't even need to happen. So, but spiking it, the this football. one now just what's that? Yeah, spiking exactly. the football. <laughs> exactly. this, this whole series now will be remembered for that particular situation. What's going to be interesting as well is uh, tomorrow the the two teams head up to the north of England to Leeds, which has a notoriously Partisan crowd. Ooh, the, so heckling, now, the heckling and, will, will get and, to and, another level. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Johnny Bairstow is uh, is from that particular area of England. He's a Yorkshireman, so obviously he's going to have the home fans uh, on his crowd. And Bill, you've got a bit of information as to what the the treatment that the Aussie players got when they came off. Bearing in mind, cricket is a very it's a little bit like squash was back in this you know in the early right. days of. You know, all whites, very gentlemanly, and it was a very kind of um, elite sport. If right, you like. right. If, if you're going to rub sand, rub sandpaper one more time on the ball, and I'm going to call a conduct on you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you that's if a PSA ref was refereeing cricket. By the way, that's my imitation. But yes, they they played the match in question at what's called the the Lords Cricket Club, which, from what I understand, is like yeah. the most exclusive high end cricket club in the world, and like the home the home of cricket. It's, it's the Wimbledon of cricket, basically. Right. Yeah. So the best part about this is at the end, and you guys should go on and, and watch the video because um, that this is the bigger. Con- so there's controversy on field. Now there's a controversy off field as the as the well healed high-end fans of the Lords waited in the hallway. As, this is my favorite part of, of cricket, by the way, as the players broke for lunch <laughs> during the match. We broke for lunch. <laughs> and they walked through what's called the Lords Long Room, which is, I guess, a historic walk, I guess, you take and go walk up and have lunch during your cricket match. And they were heckled. 
they were heckled by the uh, by the very uh, well heeled British fans, and they made it seem like it was a riot and they were getting like ripped apart and getting beat up and stuff. And basically it was a bunch of old people in tweed blazers, like hissing and booing. It was so funny. They made it the, <laughs> the explanation of it. And then you watch the video is you, you just have to do it. You have to watch it to, to understand how, how genteel the heckling seemed to be. So, Oh yeah. Connor, it's another, it's another, it's another link you can have to upload. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was very much so. And, and, and Bill, I shared uh cricket was one of my first sports I played growing up in England. And, uh, there it's a whole different culture like you would play um i don't know pj's experience but like you know playing cricket or rugby you'd literally have tea with the other team afterwards right right that that just meant like yeah. oranges or a snack um sandwiches yeah, a sandwich right, or right. some meal. But yeah. it was interesting the culture it was setting was like hey on the field you, you guys can be as competitive as you want but then you have to face each other and sit down uh afterwards and so it was you know at an early age really trying to set that tone this event, just to put a bit of history on it, this this event, the Ashes between Australia and England, is, it first started back in 1882. Yeah. So they played 66 times. Australia have won 34 of those and England have won 32. So they're so evenly matched and it's fraught with tension. One year it's in Australia, the two years later it's, it'll be back in the UK. So, you know, the history and the rivalry between Australia you know, is in pretty much every sport, but I'm not sure there's any greater than the the rivalry in, in cricket so this is just really fueled the fire and, and the reason it's called the ashes is because uh, a a editorial was written after a big win I, I i'm it was either by australia or by england the opposing newspaper the newspaper of the winning team wrote an obituary saying we cremated them and we beat them so badly it turned their body into ashes cricket cricket cricket, di- cricket died here yeah yeah and that's right and then, and then they called yeah. the ashes going forward so i learned a, here's what i learned most about it so i i'm now a little bit intrigued by cricket basically so a based on this incident, but I have learned that as hard as it is to understand cricket, it is also, and you guys did a much better job than the people I've talked to previous to this explaining to me what happened because people who know cricket, try and explain cricket to people who don't know cricket. They don't know. It's must be impossible. It's because I think it's because of all the terminology and like some of the, and they don't know how to explain it. This is like a, a, you know, like one of the tweets that you understand, but like, we don't like all that makes sense. I, I feel yeah. Jana Jana Shia should tweet about Jana. If you're listening, please tweet about this so I can. No, so I could, J- so I can far more. Uh, she would go deep into the meaning and like it's left a you know a stain on her soul. Like more like that level, right? <laughs> so yeah, shout out, shout out Jana Shia if you're listening still. If you could tweet, it's not cricket in Arabic. That would be awesome. I would appreciate it. Yeah, and we may he- hear crickets from our audience at this point. Of <laughs> we're going multi sports. Yeah, all right. Well, guys, it was good talking again. Uh, it was great to see you all. Um, we uh, we uh, look forward to our next episode. Hopefully, um, um, not not as far out as like a month and a half. If you guys if you guys could put time away from your busy schedules, that would be awesome. It's true. Bear, bear, by the way, bear, since our last podcast, Barry Gibbs has put out like thirty seven podcasts. By the way, just FYI. <laughs> uh, comparison can zap joy. All right. <laughs> see ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. 
It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.